you don't have to to drink the whole tacit programming Kool-Aid to use hooks and forks judiciously in the middle of essentially explicit code. Welcome to episode 73 of Arraycast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with us we have four panelists plus a returning guest who we will get to introducing in a couple minutes after brief introductions. So we'll go around and start with Bob, go to Stephen, then to Adam, and then to Marshall. I'm Bob Terrio. I'm a J enthusiast, and so the day is just perfect for me with our guest. I'm Stephen. I'm an APL and Q enthusiast. I'm Adam, and I am... An APL enthusiast? No, I'm I'm actually pretty enthusiastic about all the array languages, but I do a uh, my my work in APL. I'm Marshall. I've worked with uh, J and APL in the past. Uh, now I'm doing BQN and Singeli and possibly more. And as mentioned before, my name is Connor, host of the show, polyglot programmer, and also massive a fan of all of the array languages. And with that, I think we have a few announcements. We'll go to Bob first for a short announcement, and then I think Adam's got a couple, and Marshall's got three or so. And my announcement is hot off the press, is yesterday I was made aware of a video. Um, Well, it's a video, but it's actually also a podcast. Everybody seems to be doing their podcasts on YouTube now. Um, But this is Prog Langcast, and uh, I'm not sure about one of the host names, because I don't think I ever caught it, but the other is uh, Christopher Augustus, and what they're doing is they're taking a different language every two weeks, I think, and they're showing how to do what they call, well, their their thesis is that by, uh, hello world is just too simple to really show anybody what's going on in a language. So they're referring to it as bye-bye, hello world, and uh, they're taking a different language each time. So in their third episode, they've taken APL. And... Um, it's interesting. Um, I think Christopher has some experience with APL, as does the other host. Um, one doesn't like uh, symbolic languages so much as he refers to them, and Christopher does. And uh, it's that kind of interesting to watch it. They, he admits that this is not what APL is necessarily best at. It's not really showing off, but I think anything that promotes the array languages we can get behind. So I thought I'd make people aware of that. And uh, you may see other array languages come into their languages that they're looking at in the future. So yeah, definitely link in the description if uh, I haven't seen it yet. This is news to me, which is why I love hosting this podcast. So I'm going to go watch that podcast probably right afterwards. And uh, yeah, link in the show notes if you want to check that out. Adam, over to you. Yeah, well, uh, very related to that. I did watch that. It's a whole hour. Um, And yeah, well, they're not. As they say themselves, they don't tend to be uh, expert APLers or array language programmers. I think both of them have used APL in the past, long ago. Um, and so I thought uh, I would make like a, a reaction video to that where I solve the same problem, discuss some of the things they're doing and alternative ways of doing it. And also doing it in, in dialogue APL instead of GNU APL, uh, gives some more features and a bit sleeker in, in some ways. Um, so we'll have uh, a link to that as well. Um, and then a a new one of these many, what should we call them, tools, services online, um, something called the, the Omnibar, at least it's called like that for now. Um, this is Madeleine Magani, who has uh, made kind of like you have a language bar in, in the many interfaces for array languages, uh, those that use at least 
uh, non ASCII symbols, um, and and they can be used to explore the language. You, you generally can hover over them with a mouse, and like you get some kind of pop up um, about what they do. Um, and she's put together uh, already a list of uh, what are there's like uh, about ten languages into one giant list of uh, features per glyph. So it just goes through the glyphs and say uh, there's this meaning that could be given to this glyph. For example, plus can be conjugate and it can be addition. Um, and then it lists which uh, implementations, dialects of uh, or specifications of APL uh, support that meaning of the glyph. And then there's a little search bar and you can make small queries to compare them, see what are the features that this language adds over this one and what are the differences between this one and that one. Um, what was new here, um, and it's kind of cool to uh, to go and explore. It's still a work in progress, and uh, it's open source. You can maybe contribute, and, and it's being discussed actively pretty much every day in the APL Orchard, and as well. Yeah, this is really cool because one of the dialects of APL that we haven't really talked about a ton on this podcast is NARS two thousand, which is Bob Smith's APL, correct? Yeah, and it has a ton of like I guess extension glyphs, you'll call them, things that don't exist in other APLs that I don't know a ton of about. But if you go through this site, you can see that there's these, you know, integral and derivative that only exist in N2K, aka NARS 2000. So hopefully maybe we can get Bob on an episode in the future and we can talk about some of the things that exist in NARS that don't exist in other APLs. But yes, very cool website. We will be paying attention. Expect to hear updates when the site changes and gets updates as well. Anyways, over to, I believe, Marshall for the remaining announcements. So my first announcement uh, relates to uh, VQN's foreign function interface, which is how you call um, functions in, in C. So that that lets you do, I, I guess we talked about it a bit on the games episode, it lets you interface with all these frameworks that are written in C. One real issue with this has been working with C functions that pass around pointers. And so what we've had in the past for this is that you can, you can accept a pointer, but tell it convert it to a VQN array. And so it converts it, but it's it's just like the the value of the pointer as as an array of numbers or whatever. What we have now is a pointer object. So you can tell it, just give me the pointer, and it will give you a namespace back that you can then, it, it remembers what type it is, and you can read to it and write from it at different indices and cast it and pass it to more FFI functions and so on. So that's a that's a pretty nice ease of use thing as far as the... FFI is concerned. Then my second announcement, well, it might be two announcements. <laughs> First is that Nick Nikolov, who um, is the developer of NGNK, announced a few weeks ago that he uh, was no longer going to maintain it, and he has indeed stopped maintaining it. But the second announcement is that I've decided, you know, I don't really want this implementation to be unmaintained. So I've started working with it a little bit. I've fixed a few bugs now. Um, I'm actually working on some of the, we talked about windowed minimum on this podcast. So I'm right now working to implement one of the algorithms that we talked about there. So that's faster. And uh, these, I, I'm making pull requests and Nick is accepting those. So I'll keep uh, maintaining the language however I can as this goes forward. I don't want to make any radical changes, but if you have, you know, a bug that you've run into in the past or some something that was not yet implemented um, that you would really like to see done. You could mention that. Um, I guess we'll link to Nick's chat room for K is probably the place to go for that. But you can also uh, contact me directly and ask for 
anything you want uh, fixed in NGNK. Awesome. So links to everything that Marshall just mentioned and the previous panelists mentioned will be in the top of the show notes if you want to go check those out. Without further ado, we are going to introduce today's guest. He is the runaway guest for most number of appearances. I actually checked before the episode recording started. I don't think there's even anyone with four or three uh, I think the only other, there's a couple people, Tally Bainon had like a two-parter, John Ernest, we had uh, two episodes within sort of three. So I think there are a couple folks that we've had on a couple times, but Henry has been on, this is, will be his fifth time. I went and got the numbers. Not only is, our, is he our uh, most recurring guest, he was our first guest, which I always forget about because it was such a long time ago now. Uh, so in 2021, he was on episode six, 2022, episode 18, 2023, episode 48, and episode 50, and today in 2024 is the fifth time three of those episodes were covering j903 and then they changed it to j9.4 and today i think primarily we're going to be talking about updates that have happened over the last year to the j language which will be in the j9.5 potentially we might talk about some other stuff i realized uh just in the last couple minutes that we actually haven't had henry on since our tacit number five, which is was all about the train modifiers that I think in between sort of episode six and 18, which were Henry's first two appearances, uh, they were mentioned in the first one. And then I thought that was really cool. I kind of poked around into it, but like hadn't mastered it. And uh, anyways, now I still haven't mastered it, but I understand it a lot better. But we will we will throw that to the end. Uh, first, I will throw it over to Henry. And uh, I, I don't know if you want to give a brief introduction because, you, you you know, I assume the regular listeners definitely know who you are at this point. And then we can hop into sort of uh, what the what the uh, most exciting things in J9.5 are uh, over the past year. Yes, well, I'm the, the main developer of the J engine, uh, the actual interpreter, uh, having picked that up from Roger Huey uh, seven or eight years ago. We try to do a release every year, and that's part of why I've been on a couple of times, since you're kind enough to let me talk about the release. Uh, in 9.5, this was fairly light on features, but uh, there are some interesting points in it. First of all, we support modular arithmetic now with a, an adverb that you say plus M dot, and now you've got modular add. Previously, we had made a shot at doing that with some special combinations. You know, if you if you have a modulus operator with addition and you do a certain form, maybe we can recognize what you're trying to do. But that just breaks when it comes to division because division was defined to produce fractions and you have to have some something else in the language to say that what you really meant was uh, modular division. So we, we added that, and while we were at it, Cliff Ryder contributed a modular matrix inverse package. So you can now take the inverse of a matrix with a modulus. I don't know who would use that, but there, it's it seems to be, among the, our current J users, it appears in a lot of problems like Project Euler and the like. So it, it's more for people's enjoyment than for heavy use, although... The performance is pretty good. I was going to say that. I'm, I'm not sure about the, the modular matrix inverse, but my first thought when I saw this was that back in my, you know, quote unquote, competitive coding days, when you get past the beginner and maybe it shows up a little bit in the intermediate problems, but a lot of the more um, like higher level problems, 
especially in the combinatorial space, they ask you, you know, based on a bunch of stuff like, you know, calculate this number N, which is a represents a combinations or ways to do things. But when in order for the time complexity of the problem to be, you know, whatever, complicated enough that it's a tricky problem to solve, that N is going to be overflowing in N32 or N64. So they'll say modulus some crazy prime number so that it fits into one of those two integer uh, widths. And you would always have to go and modify your algorithmic solution because obviously your binary operators are not modular. So like potentially this is going to be a, a great little trick now that with J, you don't need to worry about that. You can just use this modular arithmetic and get the answer that you need without any extra work. Yeah, that, that was the idea from for people who are doing that. And it works for extended integers too. So you know, even if the modulus is bigger than fit into an inhent, it still works for you. The second thing we did and the um, what really took the bulk of the, the work on the release was uh, something that probably no very few users will ever notice. It's, it's like redoing your plumbing. It had to do with the primitives of a fetch and a mend. Fetch is where you pull a subarray out of an array. It's basically array indexing. Amend is when you modify a portion of an array. And you could say, well, you know, what is there to do about that? Well, it, the, the question it comes down to, how, what parts of the interpreter need to be made fast and when? You know, when is the time to rewrite something to go faster? You, know, you, you can't make everything fast. There's a, a notion of a, like a tasteful balance. It's something that seems like it ought, it does a lot of work. You can let that take a little bit more time than something that feels like it doesn't do as much work. So when you're fetching from an array, when, well, if you're fetching from an array, you, the user presents you with uh, a set of rows and columns he wants to fetch from. How do you do that? The simplest way, the most general way, the, the easiest way to code would be take the set of rows, pull them out of the array. And then for each of those rows, take the set of columns and pull the columns out of those rows. So you've actually done two fetches. You want you fetch the rows, then you fetch the columns. You have the same answer, but it's it's easy to code. You don't have to do anything special. It's just one loop. You're only you're doing one thing repeatedly. The problem we the, the reason I was forced to revisit this is that we have a user who has arrays that are of the shape the first axis is two and the other two axes are huge. So if you if you follow this procedure, even if what you want to get is just, let's say the arrays are, they are two by 10,000 by 10,000, and you want to fetch one lousy atom. So you want to fetch, first axis is one, the second axis is 100, third axis is 1,000. Following this procedure, you would first fetch one item from the first axis, and the result of that is a 10,000 by 10,000 array, and then you would fetch one item from the second axis, resulting in a list of 10,000 numbers. And then you fetch the single number you want. So you've done, what, 100 million? You've created 100 million words of intermediate result to produce one lousy word of output. This is offensive, and it's very slow. But what you, but, so the, the question is, how do you, how do you fix this uh, in an elegant fashion? How do you fix this so that uh, you're doing an appropriate amount of processing? And generally, the the more the user specifies, you know, the, the more work I can do. But if what he's doing, if additional specifications reduce the amount of the final result, I don't want to produce these big intermediate values. Uh, we've had this problem ever from the beginning, but uh, Roger had a pretty good solution to it. He did a special case, and instead of going one axis at a time, 
he went two axes at a time. So you first fetched from a, a square array, and that that worked. Nobody noticed for years, I think, uh, until we had this user who had arrays of this particular shape. Well, it's ten thousand times better than it could be, right? It, yeah, it's still yeah, yeah. You have to fetch an entire row when all you want's an atom. Anyway, so. What I wanted to end up with was a data structure where rather than going from the front, I would go from the back and cycle through the last axis, the fastest changing axis, and accumulate only the amount of data that I needed. So I did that. It involved completely rewriting the fetch verb, but now it doesn't have any of those um, anomalous bad performing cases. There were a couple of others in I, I don't know about other APLs, but J supports complementary indexing. No, I don't think that's common in, in most languages. Okay, so yeah. so I I can, when I specify an axis, I can say, you know, normally I say, give me number one or give me three, four, and five. And J can say, give me everything except the first and the last. Everything except zero and minus one. And the implementation of that was to cr- turn that into the list of the indexes that are desired and then read those and you can see well that, that's going to be bad if I, I may at the very least i'm producing a large index list when the user only gave me a couple of numbers if the array is you know a hundred thousand long i have to produce ninety nine thousand indexes of the index that i actually want so while i was at it i fixed that so the complementary indexing doesn't have doesn't have to produce the intermediate results that it did before so that was the first change. That, that was a matter of figuring out what an effective implementation would be and then rewriting it. Amend was much trickier problem. Wait, before we before we move to amend, just so that potentially I and maybe one or two listeners that aren't familiar with Fetch. Uh, so I went to Nuvok, took a look, and it's the left brace, a.k.a. curly bracket for those that... Uh, I think different different countries in the world refer to parentheses brackets and braces differently, but it's the curly bracket and then colon colon uh, and it's dyadic, so it takes like an integer or an array and then. Uh, oh wait, no, whoa, whoa, whoa! In that case, I used the wrong. I was wondering about that. I used the wrong name then. Uh, it's not the. It's just left brace. It's just called from right. Oh, from that's from. Okay, sorry. Okay. Uh, yeah, from takes a subarray. Fetch does sort of the same thing, except it, it then opens it if the result's a box. Gotcha. Well, it can do that multiple times too, right? And, and it yeah. does it recursively. Yes, I. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I considered saying left brace, but I thought people wouldn't understand that. I should. Have yeah, said. I mean, it is better, I think, colloquially to use the names of them. But that's what I was. Uh... Yeah, it's from. It's the big one. From not fetch. Okay. From is the the workhorse for fetching a subarray. And is what's the re- the question that I was going to ask is what's the relationship between like APL's pick and BQN's pick and from are they the same thing under different names uh no not not exactly (laughs) i heard not exactly from adam but i didn't hear what marshall said i I said no uh the question is do you want to have another do you want to schedule another episode yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right let's defer the differences of from slash fetch yeah there there are many many minor variations um and uh and also I mean, most of these languages have multiple selection primitives. Right, yeah. And none of them exactly correspond to each other. Yeah. All right, but in general, these come from the same bucket of trying to pull out an atom or element of a yeah. arbitrarily ranked array uh, is what we're dealing with. So 
yeah, Jay's from is closest to APL's bracket indexing, actually, or or squad is pretty much the same thing. No, the bracket indexing is closer. So it's selecting you can select along each dimension independently. And and the the complementary indexing comes from from the bracket indexing allowing this special syntax with semicolon delimited segments, um, one per axis. And APL has always allowed an empty segment. So you'd have consecutive semicolons or just the, at the end, there could be open bracket, semicolon, some uh, some number. So trying to make that into a function has been tried many times, including in J. And so there's the idea with the with the advent of, of enclosed or boxed arrays that you could have some uh, boxed thing. So a boxed empty list would stand in for an empty segment in, in a in the list of boxes. So it's the replacing these this semicolon segmented square bracket with a vector of boxes, but and then you need an empty box to sec to signify an empty segment. And that in APL would mean all of them. But that can of course then be extended. Well if if a boxed nothing means all of them, then maybe boxed something means all but these. In which case you can understand boxed nothing right. to mean all but none of them. That's all. So that's that's how that comes that, that history goes from APL's square brackets into J's complementary indexing. And the the squad indexing or and function in APL does not have this complementary thing at all. We will definitely this is this is a this is a arraycast promise to the listener. We will definitely do an episode at some point because this actually just came up on ADSP the other day. Uh, when we did our phone tag episode is that bracket indexing was an equivalent of like a parallel algorithm. But then at the end of the day, like I said, I really steer clear of this because it's a super practical thing. But when you're doing, you know, short one liners, a lot of the times it, it looks less pretty if than compared to some alternative. But anyways, stay tuned, listener, for a future episode on indexing, selecting, picking across all the array languages, what the differences are. Uh, but yeah, we'll table that for now. And uh, or J Bob's going to say something, and then we'll move on to uh, Amanda. Well, I was going to say the the other thing that Jay has is it's got ACE, which is a colon, and that actually stands in for the empty box. So it actually becomes really nice to be able to just drop an A colon in, and you're essentially just creating that little empty box. The, the A then stands for all, right? <laughs> sure, if you want. <laughs> if you want. <laughs> if I can interrupt us one more time. I, I was wondering, so obviously this is not going to be as good as you know the dedicated implementation you talked about, but Jay has these uh, virtual slices, right? So did you try when you index just uh, instead of actually copying out a 10,000 element row taking a slice of that array is there a problem with that or does it yes Marshall I, I did that and I I was not going to bring it up but <laughs> since you do this, uh, but yeah, if the result of the indexing however complicated it may be is a contiguous set of the original array the whole thing returns a virtual variable which is a pointer to that part of the array so no, no data has to be moved Yeah, uh, and that, that turns out to be used quite a bit uh, you know you, you fetch a, a couple of contiguous contigu rows of a table it doesn't have to make a copy of it all right yeah yeah well if you have in this future talk about array indexing this you'll really want to be talking about the amend verb amend was the second thing that had to be rewritten i, I don't know that i think that pushes up us up to a two-part episode <laughs> uh you're probably right because amend is a a real challenge uh in j and i, I don't know if it, it 
if you got bracket syntax, it's not so hard to. Well, it's still still got to be a challenge in APL too. The problem is that really alone among all the primitives, amend requires three arguments. There has to be the thing to be amended, the new stuff to put into it, and the places where the new stuff should go. I guess you could maybe box those and put them into one argument, but the decision that was made was that amend will be implemented as an adverb so that the the places you want to modify are the left argument of the adverb. The The symbol is the right brace. So you'd say uh, you five, six, seven, right brace. And that together, me, it says, okay, this is this creates a verb that modifies items five, six, and seven. That verb can then take two arguments, the right argument to be modified, the left argument with this, the stuff to go into items five, six, and seven, and the, the operation does its job. Where this becomes problematic is when rank gets involved. This this amend operation can be applied with a rank, but that rank only applies to the arguments, to, to the ultimate right and left arguments, the data to be modified and the, and the data to be installed. The indexes are are stuck. They're hidden inside the the compound, which was made up of five, six, seven brace. And so the question is, how do you how do you produce a primitive that gives you the full complexity that you want to be able to modify different parts of the array with different data? How would you make that work? Well, it's tough. And the language designers made a mistake. And I think that should lead us to be humble because if Ken Iverson and Roger Huey can make a mistake, we all are going to make mistakes. As it turns out, the, what they decided to do was they said, okay, the selector, the thing that goes to the left of the of the brace, the selector can specify any it can be in it can be a general selector. It can pull anything it wants to out of the array. The data that gets pulled out of the array will the system will remember where it came from and put the the new values in the places where the original data came from. That turns out to be very hard to implement efficiently. As you can see, in general, I may have... The, the, the trouble is that there's a single selector, a single box, can select an entire subarray. And if I, if I allow the selector to be anything, it can be an, a list of these boxes. So the specification of what is to be modified can be a set of varying shaped stuff scattered all around around the array. This poses a problem when it comes time to figuring out where what places match up with the, the left operand that has the, the new values. In the end, what the implementation did was it handled a, a couple of special cases reasonably well. And then in general, it created an index list. It first created a matrix that has the index list of every atom in the array, and then it fetches from that to find out what the atoms are that are to be modified, and then it uses that to control uh, what data is stored. And this is where it falls down uh, with a pr- on appropriate uh, use of time, because you know, let's say you've got a, an array of a million characters. Maybe it's a two-by-two two array of thousand-by-thousand. Thousand. The index list would be a two by thousand by thousand array, or a thousand by thousand by two array 
to identify the parts that are going to be modified. So again, even if I only want to modify one lousy character, I might have to create 2 million index numbers. And this is just a problem. The only way I could figure out to solve it is just say, just don't allow that anymore. So with some trepidation, I instituted the restriction that in an amend, there can only be one block specified. So it's only only one box is allowed, right? That, that was the real problem. These multiple boxes that produce multiple discontiguous regions, they're not allowed. You can still have discontiguous regions, but they're, you only can have one box specifying the region. That solves most of the problem, but it doesn't solve the problem of scatter amend, which is a very useful feature where, in, in this case, the indices for amendment are index lists of individual cells and we just go down the cells one by one and write new data into them. So, well, anyway, to cut to the chase, it turns out that there are there were enough degrees of freedom uh, in in the language between uh, singly boxed arrays, doubly boxed arrays, and triply boxed arrays that uh, I could support scatter writes and any individual box, any individual specification of a region, and do it very efficient, similar to the way it was done for from rather than it works from the bottom up and modifies only the cells that need to be modified. The problem was that this is an incompatible change. So I recognized the two special cases that I thought were most likely, and that is cases where you have multiple boxes, but they're really all specifying the same shape of region. And I put it out there in the beta and said, here it is. If you've got any problems with this, we'll talk about how to solve them. And much to my surprise, I think, it turns out nobody in the whole J world ever did any of these pathological cases that uh, took so much effort to support because it was... There was never any complaint about it. But is there a policy in J about backwards compatibility at all? Because I've seen now a few versions that, minor minor versions even, <laughs> or if they can even be called that anymore. Uh, well, we, we've tried to get back to the minor major idea. Yeah, we, there, were, there were changes that were not backward compatible. We, I mean, we, we have users like everybody else. We try to stay as compatible as possible. If we think that the language was incorrectly specified, we'll make a change. Here, that was my opinion here. The workaround for it is very simple. Sure, but it still means still breaking change. And you say you say the specification of the language was, was wrong. That's, it's not that there was some ambiguity or some misunderstanding or something. You're saying it wasn't good design, but it was still designed. Right. I, it was a design that was could not be implemented efficiently. And you say that that uh, nobody in the in the J world. I mean, I'm very impressed. Everybody in the J world Im immediately reads and uses beta versions and gets back to you. And e e either the J world is small, or 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 you have some very impressive network connections there. And well, I I don't think Henry's relying on everybody immediately responding, but it, this happens over a year, right? There's a there's a year between releases. Sure. So. I mean, I mean maybe, maybe maybe they just... no. Tom has got it, absolutely right that there there are plenty of people who just won't use a beta version, and if they're using some code that uh, that we've broken, then we've caused a problem. I mean, in in dialogue, which is what I know about, of course, we have customers for whom it's very expensive to upgrade. They need to test out lots of stuff, so they don't go from version to version. And they might do extensive testing and, and catch things like this, but they can easily go uh, five major versions up in a single upgrade. And and it takes 
years and years for them to prepare. And by the time they they finally managed to to move from their old version to the new version, the new version isn't even supported anymore. Um, and that's just how it is. And it's and it's important because we have people that rely on on, on this to deliver food to school children. I think of the kids. We have customers that rely on this to deliver medical information about patients that need to be accessed real time in emergency situations, right? You, you can't have people get blood transfusions of the wrong type because somebody messed up something or changed the specification of something. And and Dialog has a very strong part. Well, I, I don't think, I, I think the bigger problem is not those people because if they're going to test it for a year before they switch versions, they're going to find this incompatibility. It's more the, the casual user who isn't going to test it for a year, but just finds out that his code doesn't work. Maybe if they've got code coverage, but lots of old systems out there that are have well tested from real use. Are you really going to rely on, on the tests being comprehensive enough that they will catch everything when some edge case of some primitive changes? We, we had an example. Uh, I remember my father's even showing me this. You know about Quad.io in, in APL, you can index from zero, index from one, which was fixed at zero for J. And then there is the, the IOTA primitive, which is like I dot, but it's different when you have a vector argument from what you have got in, in J. In, in APL, it takes, uh, the extension takes a shape of an array and it gives you an index of an array of that shape. So it returns an array of that shape and every element is a box and enclosure, which is the vector that is uh, the indices for that element rather than just a reveled product of the of the links. So then we have, uh, or many APLs have like a shortcut for uh, the empty vector, empty numeric vector. It's called Zilda. It looks like a, a zero that's overprinted with a, with a tilde through it. And here's an interesting thing then. So what is IOTA Zilda or IOTA IOTA zero if you want? Well, if IOTA takes the shape of an array and returns an array of that shape where every element have the indices for that position, then an array of shape nothing, shape empty list, that's a scalar. And what are all the valid indices into a scalar? Well, there can only be one that only has one element. And so, and that's an empty list because you don't need any indices to pinpoint a specific element. So the correct result, logically, is uh, an enclosed boxed empty list. And those are, that's a collection, so it's a collection of all the arranged along zero dimensions, a collection of all the uh, indices into a scalar into a single element. Um, however, traditionally, at least some APLs, I, I was using APL plus and Dialog also did this, they returned the index origin as a scalar when you wrote IOTA Zilda, as if you could index into a scalar as if it was a vector somehow, but it was it returned a scalar, not a, not a vector. So. So it was a convenient way, rather than writing three characters, quad IO, to get the index origin, you could write two characters, IO to Zilda. Save a character or something. I don't know. I don't know why they did did like this, but clearly nobody would do that, right? You don't do code golf in production system. You don't write IO to Zilda instead of quad IO. It's just obscure. Surely when somebody noticed that this is the wrong result, we can just fix it. And so we fixed it and all hell broke loose. Yeah, I wouldn't, that, that's, I agree that, that that would be a big change to make. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't make that change. I should point out that this change to amend was, uh, it would not produce a wrong result. It just makes some things 
illegal that used to be legal so that if anybody's relying on the feature they're going to hit an error yeah okay that's i guess that's slightly safer to hit an error i mean they won't like it but yeah and, and chances are if your code uses it once it uses it all the time i mean it would be i guess it's conceivable that you have code that usually uses one box but sometimes adds another but um that's that would be pretty strange so i would think that if you're going to have a problem with this your program's just going to crash right away uh, yeah that, that, that's my thought too I'm, I'm not i'm not really arguing with you about this particular case i'm just i'm just a bit surprised about my what i've observed about jay's stability when it comes to the language and and certainly a dialogue we would be very very scared to change anything um, morton Cronbrook occasionally mentions how's our cto he occasionally mentions wanting to change a primitive yeah that, i think that's a, a matter of judgment it depends on if if you're pretty sure that most of your users haven't been born yet it, it makes you want to keep the language as pure as possible the best thing is not to make a mistake in definition, but it, it's just going to happen. You know, there'll be times when you just, you decide that it needs to be done differently. Yeah. You know, we had there was a question about branch cuts and some complex functions, and it, after consideration, it, we, it was pointed out that the branch cuts we use for ArcTangent or, or whatever it was were just not right. Now, can I fix that? I mean, it's it's the same argument that you've got. It's just that it's much less likely that it's going to make somebody d deliver the milk wrong, but it's still a bug. I mean, the, the question is, is it a bug or that needs to be fixed or something you have to keep compatibility with? Well, and the user always has a choice whether they want to stay with what they've been using uh, balanced against what the new features would be. I would, yeah, I would argue with that. Sometimes the choice goes away. Yeah. Eventually, it usually does. Yeah, we don't want to encourage that either. That there can be many reasons why you can't just stay, right? If things happen with hardware. Things happen with operating systems where you can't, right? Let's say some some Mac user is using some legacy thing that only was compiled on on 32-bit and just doesn't work on on 64-bit. And all of a sudden, well, being open source does help a lot. But but it's not trivial to convert, right? There have been things that yeah. I mean, if the build system doesn't work anymore, then um, right. then you have to either you know move up to the current source and and you know change the fix the problems in the source that you're having or fix the build system in the old one. Not everybody can or or can afford that. Uh, so I don't think it's a very viable thing to just say, well, you don't want to upgrade, stay in an old version. Uh, and what we do at, at Dialog, shh, don't tell anyone, uh, is we provide compatibility settings instead. So not the famous or infamous uh, Quartamel, but if we have a large customer that that uh, or even a smaller one that relies on something that we we change, then we can add a, either an option specifically for them or or that's that's secret from everybody else because we don't want to promote that kind of usage. Well, you know, we might do that too. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's not something we would talk about. <laughs> we don't know, right? Uh, or we can add, provide some some uh, some other some some option that is known out there and saying that you can set this environment variable and then it behaves slightly different. And, and interest, very interesting, you mentioned the thing about complex circular functions. And we had an interesting case when we added complex numbers to dialog, then most things were, were just fine. One thing did change and that, there used to be kind of like an Easter egg in, in old APL that if you took the cube root of a negative number, it, it has a real value. So it would return that, but it's not the primary value. So, so I mean, Morton calls it an Easter egg, at least, because who, who would actually use that? Yeah, I mean, I don't really agree with that characterization. It's like, you know, you're programming in a language that only has real numbers, and you ask, what's the cube root of minus eight? Well, 
it returning the number that cubed is going to give you minus eight is not really that crazy. Yeah. I mean, the the concept of the primary root doesn't come from mathematics. It's just a convention that um, that makes sense in order to have a continuous root function that's continuous in the... I feel strongly about this because I had to teach Algebra 2 high school. And in Algebra 2, what numbers do is what the TI calculator says it does. Hey, that's that's right. not obvious which one they change from version to version. <laughs> yeah, but they, you know, the square root of minus 8 is, two, is minus 2 on a TI calculator, unless the numbers, you know, if, if it's the three, you know, you can say minus eight to the one third, you'll get minus two. If the one third gets a little bit flaky, it's not hops to being a complex number. That That's not, that's not nice. But actually, so big deal. Who even uses complex numbers for, for actual money-making purposes? And I don't think anybody... If, you, if you're doing fast Fourier transforms, you will. No, okay, but 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 notice we added complex numbers. So nothing changed for people using complex numbers because nobody used them because they didn't exist. Right. And nobody who was using real numbers other than for fun would probably rely on these roots of negative numbers giving real results instead of erroring. Uh, I don't I haven't heard about anybody actually hitting this. However, what did happen is in an entirely different part of the language, we had the system function, the utility thing that is used to validate input. And so it would take things that are supposed to be numbers and it will tell you whether or not it's a valid, represents a valid number, a character vector, whether it represents valid numbers. And then it will also uh, give you the actual uh, number that it represents. And if people input garbage, and ABC, whatever, they would tell you this is not a, a valid number. And if people input garbage like uh, 1J2, it would tell you this is not a valid number. And one day, it started saying that 1J2 is a valid number because 1J2 is how we represent the complex number. Yeah. Uh, and that was probably a mistake. That validation function should probably have stayed real or at least had an option of some sort to say also do complex not just one day start accepting input that that wouldn't be valid. And and if you have somebody who's typing into a form, how much money is in, in the account or some other thing, and they by mistake put in a J there and you get a complex value. Well, you can imagine things getting complex real quick. Right? Yeah. So I guess this sort of thing is why like the number parsing function in BQ, and you might ask, you know, why is there not just a simple function to parse a number? What we have is a system function called parse float. And that's specified out. We picked a particular syntax that we want to use for floating point numbers, which is not the same as BQN syntax because it uses a minus instead of the high minus sign. So, and and there we can just say, well, yeah, we picked what we're going to do and that's never going to change. We think this is a reasonable choice of floating point numbers. If you need a modification, maybe you can work, you, you can do something to your input or something like that. And then if we have, you know, parse complex, then then we can add that. So naming things, of course, is one of the hard problems of computer science, but there's one tip for you. Yeah, obviously, it would have been trivial to do this, do this right. Yeah, I, I don't think it was by design that the it's called quad VFI, the system function, it changed. I think it was because it, it, it hooks into the interpreter itself, yeah. parsing numbers. And the interpreter all of a sudden started understanding things as numbers that weren't numbers before. That kind of oversight is easy to make. I, I'm pretty sure if somebody had thought about it, they would have not Yeah. Uh, agreed that that was a good a good decision to make. Now, of course, we can't really change it back. So what do you do? You have to provide some option for, for customers to make sure that data entry in forms doesn't accept complex numbers. Yeah. And, and that's why I'm asking really, come back to what is the policy 
fudge or maybe there isn't one maybe there should be one well there is one we don't we try not to break old code this was a case where if it was going to break old code it would it would break it it wouldn't produce invalid results and the implementation is much better but i i remember there were there were even some some primitives that were i remember like one of those with a letter and a dot or something that were removed and then from one version and then came back meaning something else Right? Yes, and that that seems dangerous. If somebody skips a version, then they just get different results all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We took calculus out. We decided that 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 was a blunder. There, there. It goes back twenty years to when J Software, I think, was going to try to compete with Mathematica or something like that. I'm I'm not exactly sure what the the business model was, but the idea was we can do symbolic mathematics. Eh, that's cute. But C is not the right language to program that. Yeah. Roger realized that pretty early and froze the development. But we decided, you know, somebody might be able to make a decent package of this if they want to. So we decommitted the primitives and replaced them with scripts to do the same thing. And now, in fact, I think Jan Peter Jacobs is working on, has been submitting improvements to that package. So that that worked out the way we wanted it to. We shifted it from something that would not be worked on to something that can be worked on by the users. And I think the one was the T dot, which was the Taylor series, right? And I don't know that that's been replaced yet. I know Raul talks a lot about going in and writing it. It's uh, something about threads, isn't it? it? Now it's threads, yes. I think in general, this topic of API, ABI evolution is like a super important one, but it always comes down to trade-offs. Like... Obviously, guaranteeing 100% backwards compatibility is great in the sense that everything Adam's talking about. If you've got clients that are depending on this behavior, you know, everyone's heard of Hiram's Law. If there's some... Well, I mean, there's the scope of... There's a few degrees of this. I mean, you you don't guarantee that the bugs are going to stay in unless... Well, I mean, there's one way to do that, and that's to... No, yeah, yeah. I, I remember when I was a kid, one of my friends was working in an office. He found a bug in the square root routine. This was a COBOL shop. You know, what? somebody had written a subroutine to do square root. He gave the wrong value if the input was less than one. But should you fix it? Exactly. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question because the, it's used to, for calculating when to order material. People might be relying on that bug. Even something as blatant as that. It's not obvious whether you should change it or not. Literally in C++ land, they talk about bug-for-bug bug compatibility. Like 100% backwards compatibility means bug-for-bug. Bug. Like, yes, you can find a bug, but if you have guaranteed in a standard that you have 100% backwards compatibility, technically that means bug-for-bug. Bug. And so across, because we've got GCC, Clang, and MSVC, and then there's you know a, a plethora of other less well known C plus plus compilers like Intel's ICC, etc. Like they're they're and they're different front ends. I've talked to compiler vendors that they have like different bugs in each of the you know MSVC Clang G, and they all have they have to match, so they have different bugs implemented to, for each of the different compilers. Like it sounds absolutely nuts, but that's. That is a part of the trade-off. Sure, you're guaranteeing that you're not going to break things, but you're also guaranteeing that you are like codifying your mistakes that you make into stone and there has to be some path or like 
migratory, you know, we're going to unit test. And if we are going to fix something and there's been stories where in C++, like in C++ 11, they changed the implementation of stood string from copy on write to not be copy on write. And it like, it like broke the world. It like broke the world. And to this day, you know, over a decade later at committee meetings, people talk about how like the implications of like, oh, we're just changing the implementation. We're not actually doing anything like at an API level, but like people find a way to rely on stuff and then it breaks the world. The point being, is that there are, are, are trade-offs is at the end of the day. And like, it's a very hard problem to address. And I think there's like merits for both. Like I don't use WeWa for anything right now because currently they're, they're changing everything under the sun from version to version to version to version. And I think that's fantastic. Like I wish more languages would do what WeWa is doing and that they're just, they're experimenting. They're throwing spaghetti at the wall. They're throwing stuff in, taking it out the next version it obviously is not a technology you're currently going to build like a company on top of because like that would be nuts. Like there it's like, yo, well, we're going to go take this car, this new, you know, competitor to Tesla. You know, they keep turning and taking the wheels off and like calling back everything while we're in the middle of our road trip. But like, it'll be fine. No one does that. But it still means that like probably the language that WeWa ends up at is going to, you know, have polished a bunch of stuff that they were experimenting with and they're going to end up at a you know better product. Versus like, you know, not being able to do that. Like, so it's not to say that one's better, one's worse. It's just that there's trade-offs, right? Like, uh, but, but every language started like that, I'm sure. VQN was also very experimental. APL was also very experimental well, once upon a time. Uh, no, I think the, the total number of changes in VQN that have ever been made is approximately one WeWa version. <laughs> uh, since, it, uh, since it was even written down since before it was public. If you, if you started the public release, there are three or four added primitives, probably character arithmetic, but the the backward compatibility breaks are... after after it was published, right? So the question is, but but because absolutely did have an experimental. Well, after anybody other than me um, was aware of this language, uh, well, it, when it was an internal dialogue project, and and wasn't called BQN yet, and. There was all kinds of stuff. Yeah, no, but the first you heard the name BQN was when I went on the forum to to talk about it and announce it publicly. Correct? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, but it doesn't matter with the name BQN, right? It was very that that idea of the language and how it it developed. It was very much in flux, right? You're talking about what kind of symbols, the whole thing about the superscripts and the. All right. I mean, if you're saying that there was a design period for the language, yeah, yeah but it was not. And things went back and forth and par various pairings of primitives. And even APL itself was like that. If you look at the at the early uh, Iverson notation, like every paper he came up with was somewhat different. With the same general thing, but it was somewhat different from the other ones. You can't just take one and read that and take the specification of the language and read another paper. It does it's not compatible with each other. Once they made an actual I mean they, they might even they they I'm, no, I'm sure there were things back and forth, even that when it was an internal thing at IBM before it was ever published. But once they published it, it became generally available on the, on the 360, then it was set in stone and very little has changed. I'm always surprised that IBM actually changed one thing going from old APL to APL2. With the, what's stronger, square bracket indexing or, or stranding? And that did break stuff when people were migrating. So I think, and, and and Jay as well, right? Jay started off as the APL backslash question mark and things changed. But the question is, do you stop that phase or can can you keep going? How much are you allowed to change? Do what what about 
bugs, bug for bug compatibility. I would love to change the definition of APL's monadic iota on a one element vector to be different than it is today. Can't do that. It would break so much. Yeah, you can't. You can't do that. And yeah, dyadic grade is a is a bit of a a weird thing, and the the encode. That's the represent primitive. It both in, in APL and J has a very strange behavior with a scalar as left argument. It it just chops. It's, it pretends this, the, the left argument is a one element vector, which gives you a useless result. It gives you a modulus. It's, if you mean modulus, do modulus. Don't do a represent. The only difference would be comparison tolerance. But seriously, if you're relying on this, yeah. changing the primitive in, in order to get a modulus with zero comparison tolerance, and fuzz, then then you're just trying to make it obscure. I would love to change that, for example. Can you do that kind of thing? Yeah, we would agree. Those are, you you can't change that. Similar to your iota example, if you open an empty boxed list, that's a special case. It doesn't doesn't follow the rules for fills. It's the only the only example in the whole language that doesn't follow the fill rules. I'd like to change that, but. Here's a fun one: the dialog changed, and I don't know why they changed. And it became different by the change. It became different from all the other APL implementations that I know of. APL has has strong prototypes of types in the in empty arrays. So empty arrays remember what they were before they were empty. And so there's a fun case: if you take the empty character vector and concatenate it with an empty numeric vector, or vice versa, you have to have an empty vector come back out. But which type does it have, numeric or, or character? So you have to choose either right or left. Yeah. Should people rely on this? No. In J, that's well specified. There's a there's a priority rule for right. for those types, and we we pick according to the rule. Anyway, let me let me continue on with the, the release. We've got the, so the bulk of the work was this uh, rewrite to from and amend with a happy ending, I believe. Um, the last time I was on here last year, we talked a little bit about structural tool or structural under, which is for the listeners under where we in, in J speak, we would say U under V means do V, then do U, and then apply the inverse of V. So undo V mathematically, similarity transformations or you know, it, it's a change of point of view. And the, the question is, can you extend that to cases where V doesn't actually have an inverse? Well, I mean, you can, but can you usefully extend it to cases where V doesn't have an inverse? And those, I take it, are called structural unders. Is that right? Well, I mean, that's for particularly structural functions that discard some elements. More like a selective. Yeah, I mean, that that's one mechanism of extension there. It doesn't... Anyway, what we were talking about last year, Jay didn't support any of those. Uh, in in Jay 9.4, if the inverse of V didn't exist, you were out of luck. You couldn't do that. And it was pointed out in this podcast that there are some places where it might be useful to define those inverses. So I looked into it, and I found that this is a really tough problem. I think, in general, there would need to be a different symbol for under when, when it's using a true inverse versus when it's using a pseudo-inverse. But I didn't want to go there. So what I've dipped my toe in is using the regular under symbol but giving special definitions for special cases where no real inverse 
could possibly be defined. And so far, there have been only two of those cases that have come up. One, uh, one is a case where the operation is the Ravel operator, comma, says destroy whatever the shape was and turn the object into a list. Now, you can't do that. You've destroyed the shape and it's gone. So clearly, this can't be meaningful if you're looking for a true inverse. But in the case, in the context of under, it would be reasonable to say, well, really, if I started with an op argument Y and the operation is destroy the shape of Y and replace it with a list, the undoing that would be taking whatever list comes out and putting it back into the shape of Y. That's reasonable. That doesn't conflict with any prior definition of anything. So we implemented that. We can, you can use comma, you ravel in file if you have whatever name you want to use for it. You, you can remove the structure from an argument and have it put back as the inverse. And more importantly, found a second example which can be used. If you select items, if you do a selection from an array and you want to undo that, the definition now is store back into the array. So amend the selected elements is used as the inverse for take the selected elements. And that turns out to, I've used, used that quite a bit lately. It's a, a useful function. And also, it gives the advantage for completely operating in place. So if you want to add one under selecting the first two items, it will just add one directly into those two items and not make any, it won't copy anything. No, no copies of data need to be done. It can be done completely in It'll place. It'll pull out the first two items, right? So if you were taking 200, you might get it. Oh, it just, um, no, so it's got some no, special recognition for the one plus thing. No, what's special in the language. Or it takes a slice. Or the implementation is that blocks are marked as being eligible for in-place operation. Oh, so this is used for rank two, isn't it? So, I think I've... But what if you overflow? What if you have 250, uh, well, 127, 127, 127, and then you try to add one to the second element? These are virtual blocks. The, Surely it has to rewrite the entire array. I'm sure it works, but I'm saying, but you can't always do it in place. Sometimes you have to. Oh, right. Just, I, I said, okay, whatever the type types might be, whatever. I mean. Yeah, it, it, it'll, it, yeah you can overflow an integer. If you overflow an integer, it'll, it recopies the array. But if it doesn't, the, the, the way it works is it, it creates a virtual block for the region that was selected. Marks that block is eligible for in-placing. Sends that off to the verb. And the verb... The verbs say it's add one, or you know maybe translate by fetching from some other array. If that verb returns the same original block that's been modified, the operation says, "Oh yeah, it happened in place. I'm done." If it returns some other block, then that result has to be copied in. The, the only special code is in the the dual the, the dual thing that knows that it's taking the inverse of a from operation. So it's highly efficient. Useful for these big arrays that are modif being modified. Anyway, so yeah, and so I'm glad I asked about uh, whether from return slices. So I gather that you know from is going to inspect its left argument and figure out whether it's a bunch of contiguous indices. And that's right. Yeah, so that's pretty neat. It gets tricky if there's more than one axis, but the leading axes have select only one element. So it's it's possible that you can get a virtual result even from a multi-dimensional from, uh, but. Anyway, with the rewrite, it handles all that properly. That, that, that's very useful. It's Henry, you mentioned uh, using 
from to modify the first few elements, but surely it would be more natural to use take to select the first few. So I want to add one to the first three. Surely I would want to use one plus under three take or something like that, or one one tied with. Yeah, yes, the problem. Okay, you're you're right about that. The problem is that in the context of under take has an inverse. The inverse is known as mistake. <laughs> yes, it's, well, yes, it pads with it pads with fill elements to 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 counteract the taking, right? No, because it doesn't know how long it's supposed to be. Drop does. Oh, oh, you're right, you're right. Yes, okay. I think it just returns the same thing. Yeah, I, I I forget what it is. It might or might not be well defined or properly defined, but it has a defined inverse, and that's an example of one of those things that we're not going to change. Yeah, you know, we we would not change that because people... and you need two different conjunctions for for the structural under because you can't you have a compatibility problem with the old meaning because you have inverses for right interesting things let's say like this exactly that's that's where I came down to that if, if you want to try to generalize this you need to have two different symbols but I haven't the the cases I've found that are interesting so far are cases where the the inverse really isn't defined. So I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, it is revel, but you could also have the raise, right? That's like a super revel. We destroy all the structure. Yeah, that should be doable. Uh, I don't know what. Well, we, if we could de define the inverse of that, I'm, I again, I don't. That may have a defined inverse for all I know. But anyway, the, so the, these first couple of examples of structural and are interesting. They they show the depth of the problem, and they also show that there are cases where it can be very beneficial. So, just in case I it was said and I am lost in the sauce, was the inverse of take actually ever mentioned? Or did we just say it exists and then... Yeah, it, it is. The in, inverse of take um, can just be an identity function. In, it, inverse of drop, you have to you can pad with prototypes. Um, but inverse of take, so it's, you think about it. So I'm, I'm taking the first three. Oh, trust me, I'm thinking about it. I just am not understanding. <laughs> yeah, and then so, so then, so then I want to say, what argument could I give such that taking the first three gives this result? Well, the same thing. Right? If something has three length three, which it has after you take three, then if you take the first three, you get the same thing. So a, so a proper inverse of take is the identity function, but it's not useful inverse. Am I the only one that didn't understand that? Well, I can tell you how it's defined in J. I've just looked it up. The inverse of take three is not defined. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was just trying to and got an error. The, if you just do the monad, just please take the head, it does have, it is defined. It adds an axis. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. But but it, but it didn't have to, right? It could have. Well, it, yeah, it's, I, I. Oh, no, that, uh. No, because because the, the head the head does have to reduce. It's a reduction, right? Yeah, head reduces the rank. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, it could add fill elements for no reason. But anyway, so you're right. Take three uh, would be a candidate for us. So Jay does not implement mistake, <laughs> but dialog does. Ah, yeah, that's why yeah, I was. Yeah, take three would be a candidate for structural under. And 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 head head and head and tail also then right. Well, not head because head head already has an inverse, so I can't change that inverse. No matter how much I'd like to, uh, yeah. and I actually don't like to very much. I think that inverse is occasionally useful. Yeah. So we have an even worse problem is a dialogue trying to to do structural under. You have to it has to be separate from 
the, the under or instead of it. Um, but it's quite often that I, we have it. We have an operator that's that... well. So you don't yet have the worst problems because you haven't implemented the regular under. That's the yeah. That's yeah. true. That's the that's 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 the thing. And then people say, "Ah, when is it coming? When is it coming?" It's not that simple. You don't want to make the mistakes like this. But when you when you you spoke about the, um, the amend and 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 how it works, and we have we have an at a at attic operator, so like a conjunction in in dialog, the at operator. And, and I quite often use that. And it, it basically implements part of the functionality you get from structural under in that it allows you to do operations at a certain subset of, of the array itself. And things like things like, it, like setting the first bit of a Boolean vector to one is very convenient to do one at one. Oh, well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's useful. And there's something you could do with structural under as, as uh, one under first, right? Of some yeah. whatever your function is for first yeah. or head. Well, anyway, so the that's the stuff we talked about so far got us up to about September. We didn't release until December. Part of that was to uh, leave a lot of time for people to check out the changes to amend. But also, we were busy on functions that we did not announce in 9.5, but did announce in the beta for 9.6. Uh, and those are new numeric precisions that we support. And I would since you guys have worked with languages that support different precisions of numbers, I wanted to uh, try to learn from you. Now we, we currently support double-double floats, so 104-bit floating point what? as a native precision. Hold on, not 104, surely. Uh, that sounds lower than what I've heard. I've heard 105 or 106, but 104 might be the actual, yeah. You could argue 105, but... You don't have complete, because the representation of a number has to be in a canonical form uh, so that comparisons for equality were, were easy to do. Yeah. So the, the second hidden bit, uh, you don't have a free hand on the second hidden bit. Maybe 105, perhaps. 53 bits in the top part and 52 in the low part. Oh, I think I now understand. Maybe I'm just the only one that doesn't know about low-level stuff, but we should introduce maybe this to the listener. So what you do is you... All that your number is, is two regular floating point numbers, which represents the exact sum of those floating point numbers. And because floating point has an exponent, one of the numbers is going to have a higher exponent and the other one's going to have a lower. So that second number pretty much just gives you extra digits, extra bits. Yeah, you, you might be thinking of IEEE quad precision. That's not That's not what this is. Uh, IEEE quad precision, I think, has a 15-bit exponent and would and would give you more than 105 bits. But there's no native hardware support for that anywhere, I don't think. The the double-double, exactly as Marshall said, you got, you got a high part and a low part. That, that's supported reasonably well with, uh, particularly when you have the fuse multiply accumulate instructions, the, the implementation of that is pretty fast. And so that's the that's what we use for an extended floating point. That's just for those cases where you just need thirty decimal digits of accuracy, and there's no substitute for it. We have users in that case, so we're supporting them. But I'm more interested in your experience with shorter integral forms. We we also introduced four byte integer and two byte integer, and maybe maybe one byte integer is coming. I mean, I've got it's slot reserved for it, but how do you handle conversions between those forms? 
So what's the definition here? Are these like types that the user can see? Like if you add two two byte integers together, will they wrap at the two byte boundary or are they just um, uh, implementation optimization? Well, this is a beta, so it's it's up in the air, but uh, what the way it's implemented currently, yeah, there are storage formats. So you have signed two byte integers. When you create one, the order of priority is lowest priority is the standard J number. Yeah. A J number is Boolean or integer or float or complex, whatever it needs to be. Above that in priority is two byte integer. And above that is four byte integer. So if I add a number to a two byte integer, I'll get a two byte integer. Huh. If I add two two byte integers, I'll get a two byte integer. So if you add two byte to four byte, then you're then you it increases the precision instead of squashing it down. Right. Four byte is, is the highest precision. If you overflow on adding to a two-byte integer, you get a domain error. The, the idea is if you specify the storage format, you really care for some reason. Yeah. Probably you've got billions of them, and you don't want to just double the space without at least knowing that you did it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I haven't worked with this this sort of thing. What Dialog and BQN do is they just tell you, you know, numbers are numbers. Um and for dialogue, you can you know set whether the number is a regular binary float or a decimal float. BQN, everything we've got currently just says floats. It could say complex, but we haven't implemented that. And then you know under the hood, it optimizes that as thirty-two bit or sixteen or eight bit integers when it finds out that it can. So yeah, I don't really know much about how you deal with all these um, different types if the user is specifying them. That's so NumPy and Julia, I know, have those. And K, I know you can do those in a K database. I don't know, like most of the open source K implementations don't give you a lot of numeric types. So I don't know how like Q and K4 really handle it. You can find the documentation on these, I'm sure, but not on how they're implemented. So yeah, I know a few languages do this, but it's not something I've worked with. Yeah, I'm implementing them for a use case for a user where the variables are pretty big big enough that they're going to blow out any or they're close to blowing out the caches yeah so they're trying to control the memory use uh, and a savings of factor four or factor two would be uh, worth reaching for hmm. so I, I but i've got no experience on, on how they're going to be used i expect most of the time they'll almost be read only yeah they're written so as to save space and we'll be convert them to numeric mm -hmm. for actual use yeah and i i mean i guess you could You've already got um, all the different selection functions and stuff work on any width. So as long as you're not going to do arithmetic on them, you can move them around however you want, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah, you can. Yeah, the i dot family and all the structural yeah you know, changes, re reshape and copy and all that jazz. Would Would that be a case where you might want to use an immutable array? So in a case you'd make it read only. Well, uh, it is, I mean, we don't have that in J. Well, I mean, the semantics are always that it's immutable. So you're not like if you amend the array and you've got a copy saved somewhere else, it's it's going to do a copy um, to avoid changing your your saved value of that array. Potentially, what we should be doing now is turning this to the listener and saying, <laughs> I mean, we've got I don't know if it's a thousand, but uh, we've got in the hundreds for sure uh, of technically minded folks that are listeners here. So. If any of you have had experience in this area, reach out to either us directly and 
we can pass it along to Henry, or I'm not sure, Henry, if you want to plug your email and they can just reach out to you directly. Uh, well, Henry H. Rich at gmail.com. There you go. And I, I definitely know that there's a ton of work in this space. I personally, the closest I've done anything to this, to this is uh, my work that I did on fixed point numbers. That is, that's a, you know, adjacent to floating point implementations. Um, but yeah, I mean, they are becoming much, much more widely used in the space of machine learning and stuff. I'm not sure if that's what your customer's use case is, but the uh, half floating point and quarter floating point and the joke that I always hear is that, you know, when it comes to machine learning and AI, it's just a guess anyway. So who cares if you're off by a little bit? Uh, <laughs> it's a recommendation <laughs> engine at the end of the day or something like I mean, it's I'm cer- certain ac- applications are more serious. But to be totally yeah. honest, like a, a ton of it is just, you know, these, you know, recurrent or convolutional neural nets that uh, are just doing, you know, image recognition or what Netflix show you want to watch next. And it's not the end of the world. If you know, uh, the sixth, the sixth recommendation versus the seventh or in reverse order or something like that. Uh, well, it does lead to a, a questions about what primitives to implement. If, if you, if you're going to have very short integers or short floating point, you might need saturating addition. Yeah. And that, that just becomes a nightmare. Right. <laughs> more i don't know i don't know how bad it is i yeah well like what do you do if somebody wants to saturating add two byte to four byte it's like when everything's all the same type it's it's good but then when you have something that mixes types then you're in trouble all of a sudden yeah well if we have what i'm doing with two byte plus four byte is yeah to avoid this quadratic proliferation of routines to add yeah I have arranged all the types in a priority order and I convert everything to the highest type. That's very similar to what fixed fixed point does. They just, they, there's like an algebra for if there's two different scales or representations, you convert to the same one and then you do the operation, um, which inevitably means that in certain cases you're going to lose some precision. So it's then put on the user to say, okay, you do the adjustment of whichever one so that they're in the same version so that we're not automatically doing something that you didn't want. But yeah, it's, there's always like four or five different ways you could do it. The question is, is like, which one do you implement and then force the user to hand roll some extra stuff if they want something different and it's, it's never pleasant. You never, (laughs) you never finish implementing it and go, ah, this is completely intuitive. And the user will never be surprised that that is not how it works, um, fortunately. All right. Well, we are just about to pass the one and a half hour mark. I'm not sure if there's anything else uh, that you wanted to highlight either in the 9.5 release or the 9.6 beta release. Because I, I think if I recall, you mentioned that this stuff isn't in 9.5, but it's being designed for 9.6, correct? The, the uh, new numeric precisions or not. Yes. Everything else we talked about was in 9.5. All right. Well, if that's the case, then I guess we should let people know if they want to get their hands on either 9.5, 9.6, what is the, the best place to send folks to? I mean, I'm sure we'll include the link in the show notes, but uh, where can people find uh, either the beta 9.6 or J9.5? Um, oh, well, you just go to system installation, essentially on the wiki. It'll take you right there. Or you go to the J software site and follow your nose through to the downloads and that that will take you into whatever you want and you can download old versions too you don't have to take the most version but i think one thing i've learned out of all of this is if you're a j user it's very important that you spend time playing with the beta because if there are things that you want to influence that's your chance to do it and you have roughly a year i know there are things that are introduced through that year but you 
they they don't really spring things on you. They're you've given some time to to respond, and I'm sure there's no doubt when you're in a situation where it's fluid in a beta, nobody's going to try and create something that's going to create huge problems. They're going to make adjustments. Um, but once that beta hits, once it becomes the working version, I suppose your option is to go to a most recent version that doesn't cause you a problem. And then, as I said, I know my approach is to say, well, the user takes the balance between are the are the um, opportunities worth what staying with the old one changing is. And I understand that there are times that you're forced to change, and that can happen. But I think in a lot of cases, if you keep up with the beta, you can find those things and you have some influence for sure. Um, in general cases, contact at arraycast.com. You can give us the feedback. Uh, we're happy to have it, and we can forward stuff to Henry as well as to uh, Marshall if uh, you don't want to go directly to Marshall for the uh, NGNK uh, issues that he might be encountering over the, the next while. Mm-hmm. And that looks like Adam's got something to say. Well, um, having influence on, on these things, shouldn't we be celebrating then? Sounds like there's a the first real confirmation of the Raycast having direct influence on its own subject matter. No, actually, it's, I think it's the second because the modifiers, the invisible modifiers, was that's, the that's right. that was mentioned here and then got changed. Mm, we only we oh, only yeah, yeah. we, we spoke about them, but yeah, I don't think it didn't sound like it. That, that was mentioned here, but the the reason I brought them back is because otherwise I was going to have to change all the other documentation. But so old documentation referred to it. It was easier to reinstate the feature than to fix the old books. I have to say though, I love the language. I think it's amazing what uh, what you can do with Ken's language. It, it has nothing. You know, there's no punctuation, no operator. It's just spaces and parentheses. And yeah, we we will have to have you back because we didn't we didn't end up getting to it. And I actually I have a list. Where's my list somewhere? I got a, I got lots of stuff on my computer, but I have a list of YouTube videos to make, and there are the title says three YouTube videos, but there's actually five listed because clearly there was three when I made the list, and then I added a couple, and uh, one of them is the last number five on the list. Doesn't it's not necessarily my priority, but is J Video Decoding, and it is. Uh, I'll actually read it. I'll read it. I'm not going to explain what it does because I don't even understand. I can't remember what video, but someone commented on one of my YouTube videos, and this is the expression, and it's using a modifier train. Plus, left parentheses, comma, at, left parentheses, left parentheses, backslash, forward slash, forward slash, tilde, right parentheses, hyphen, right parentheses, tilde, right parentheses. So that's like six parentheses, three slashes, if you include both, two tildes, a plus, a minus, an at, and a comma, and it's a modifier train, and I remarked on some video or some podcast at some point that someone left a comment, and I, I think it was a live stream, but I, I haven't been able to decode it, but then someone actually emailed. I want to say his name was Igor. I might just be making that up, but if you're listening, if you're listening to this podcast, someone went and like line by line decoded it, and I, I do plan to turn that into a YouTube video. Anyways, maybe I'll make that YouTube video, and we'll have you back on to... Uh, to, to revisit the topic of modifier trains, because they are a beautiful, if not entirely practical, uh, language feature that is exists in no other language. Uh, 
I, I'm going to have to disagree with you about some of this. I, I, Igor Zhirovlov, I think you're talking about. He's he's a pistol. <laughs> uh, he, he, he catches a lot of <laughs> of our mistakes. I, I don't think you're doing Jay a service if you put a sentence like that out and suggest that this is what Jay is like. I I wouldn't. I don't. I wouldn't write that. I I would. And the reason it was taken out is because so few people could use the modifier trains that way that it was just better to tell them do it with explicit modifiers you know right use u and v and and say what you mean in a way that it's easy to understand uh, there's really no reason that that a user needs to write that complicated expression that that you wrote that you talked about there's, there's no there's no reason the user needs to write forks and and hooks either right no i don't I disagree with that no, a, a fork in a, a fork in the middle of an of a sequence of verbs is a very quick way of saying what you mean but there's modifier trains well you know what a fork does you know what a hook does but the modifier sequence conjunction adverb conjunction what does that do? <laughs> there are about 20 of them and so to begin with you're going to have to go look it up and see how to make the substitution and okay so you've made the substitution and the example we were given there are probably four or five different pieces that have to be decoded that way you can do it but if somebody looks at that and says well this is what jay is about well that's not what jay is about Nobody writes that way. <laughs> I mean, that's not true. A few people. There are a couple people who write that way. But 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 aren't you expressing exactly the sentiment that people would have towards the forks? You said you said now. Well, a fork, a hook. You know what that does. Well, but if I didn't know what it did, then I had to go and look up what it did and then decode it. Okay, so this this verb takes these arguments. This. That's right. But but the, my my point is there are two there are two things. And there's there's a fork, there's a hook, and there and they occur a lot, and I can reasonably expect you to learn what those two things do, and you can carry that with you and internalize them, and use them to debug a sentence or to look you look at a sentence and understand it, and you don't have to to drink the whole tacit programming Kool Aid to use hooks and forks judiciously in the in the middle of essentially explicit code, right? Which how and how I want people to realize that J should be used. If if you try to do everything tacit, it makes it much harder. And that's up to you. But with these modifier trains, it's a it's another level of complexity, uh, and there's not much payback for it. You know, with with hooks and forks, at least I could. Yes, I, I want to propose that we have Henry back on for tacit six. Yeah. <laughs> I'm literally, I'm literally thinking to myself that like that was maybe the best clip. Are we allowed to put that as the cold open though? Because ninety eight percent of the episode had nothing to do with this, but now he's saying you don't have to drink the the, uh, the tacit Kool Aid. You know <laughs> that we uh, should use that for the for the next tacit episode. Here's here's another Arraycast promise, or maybe this is just a code report promise. When I do make this video, I will I will cut in. I'm not sure if I'll use the video recording if uh. everyone agrees or just the audio. I'll prefix my video with this uh this isn't the J that everyone knows and then I will continue to make my video that you just told me is a disservice. But I'll make sure that I get your disclaimer in there that like people don't write code like this except for Igor and maybe one or two <laughs> others out there. And uh No, no, I don't think Igor does it either. 
I think Igor can Igor can understand it. Uh, there, there are. Um, I I have written a, a couple of modifier trains that I use as utilities. You know, it, it's a, a, a modifier train is a useful template. You know, it, it's it's not bad if you give it a name and some commentary. You can describe what it's doing. But even at that, it's no better than just writing it out as an explicit definition. Both versions, when they're given U and V operands, boil down to the they produce the same verbs that eventually get executed. The 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 advantage of the modifier trains is they are very elegant. You no, know, they're pretty. Not pretty. Not pretty. Not pretty enough that people should learn to use them. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I just don't want people to think Jane's hard enough. You know. Without without having to think that you've got to, to learn this entire meta language of modifiers. All right, perfect. This this is great because we did it, folks. Tacit five point three, I believe this is, or I don't know if we're on five point four. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna see if we can get a full set of five point fives all the way to point nine, and then we'll do tacit six. Uh, rest, you know, leave it to leave it to your host, uh, me, to turn any episode, <laughs> even if it means extending it another ten or fifteen minutes to make Bob's job harder. Anyways, <laughs> I apologize, Bob. We will say uh, thank you so much, Henry, for coming on. This is always a blast uh, when we get to chat. Uh, and I probably we're gonna have you on uh, uh before yes. uh, a year passes to get our J nine point six update because it's clear. Uh, we whether the listener wants to hear it, we definitely want to talk about modifier trains again, <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll reach out to you and, and find a time for that. And Bob's got one last thing to say. I just wanted to point out that when we do tacit number six, it is not guaranteed to be backwards compatible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that, I think we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array programming. programming.